These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan, in the fortieth year on the first day of the eleventh month. Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all the Lord had commanded him concerning them. Now Israel, hear the decrees and laws I am about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Do not add to what I command you, and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Ask now about the former days, long before your time. From the day God created human beings on the earth, ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything so great as this ever happened, or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire, as you have, and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation, by testings, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. Because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you and to bring you into their land to give it to you for your inheritance as it is today. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, Then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your ancestors. He will love you and bless you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. 
Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over to it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. In my opinion, this must have been a very bittersweet day for Moses. And I wonder, as he trudged alone up the slope of Mount Nebo, I wonder if the memories of all that he had been through over the last 40 years came flooding back into his mind. You know, the Bible doesn't indicate this, but I have a hunch a hunch that Moses knew that this was the last day of his life. That he would journey to the top of Mount Nebo. He would look over into the promised land. But he wouldn't come back. He was making his way up. But he wouldn't come down. When he reached the summit, God would allow him to look out over the promised land, a panoramic view of the territory that God had promised to Abraham, the patriarch of the Israelite nation. Enslaved in Egypt for the past 400 years, no living Israelite had ever lived in that ancestral land. But stories of land flowing with milk and honey, a a promised land, were passed down through the generations. For Moses, it was a homeland he'd spent the last 40 years heading toward. But it was a homeland that he would never reach. He would only see it from a distance. That day on Mount Nebo. And I wonder if, as he made his way up that mountain, if he thought about the journey of faith that he'd been on. Faith in the God of Abraham. Born in Egypt to Hebrew slaves during a time when Pharaoh had decreed that all male Hebrew babies be killed at birth, Moses managed to survive. But how? The Bible tells us that by faith... Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. His parents protected him. His older sister Miriam kept watch over him as he floated in a basket near the bank of the river. Found by Pharaoh's daughter, he was raised in her household and educated as an Egyptian. But Moses, whose own mother served as his nanny, grew up knowing his true identity. The Bible tells us by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. What an interesting phrase. The fleeting pleasures of sin. What would cause someone to reject life in the royal court, residence in Pharaoh's palace, in order to identify with slaves? What motivated Moses to stand up for his people? The Bible tells us he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as a a greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. It would appear that Moses could in some way, shape, or form see a bigger picture in play. Somehow he was able to grasp a larger view and a longer view of life. The ease of palace life, the enjoyment of sin in the here and now, these were fleeting pleasures. Here today, gone tomorrow. And Moses looked ahead to a reward that would last forever. But how? How could he maintain that perspective The Bible says, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Think about that. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. He saw God. As he navigated that ascent up Mount Nebo, I wonder if Moses' mind drifted back to all those times that he saw him who is invisible at work in his life. Back to the burning bush when God called him to go back to Egypt facing Pharaoh, one of the most powerful men in the world at that time, and demanding, let my people go. Seeing God at work in the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. Being led for 50 or 40 years by a cloud at day and a cloud of fire by night. Meeting with God on Mount Sinai and receiving the Ten Commandments. Being fed for 40 years by manna from heaven. He had seen him who is invisible. But you know, seeing him who is invisible didn't shelter Moses from the realities of life. There's no doubt that during those 40 years of leading the people, he had experienced incredible highs. Who could have ever imagined that a man who had spent 40 years tending his father-in-law's sheep would end up leading a nation Estimated at somewhere around 2 million people out of slavery. It's amazing. Who could fathom the miracles that he witnessed? But there were devastating lows as well. After arriving at the border of the promised land, the people lost faith and refused to enter, not believing that God could help them conquer the land. And God required them and Moses with them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation had died off. 
This was personally heartbreaking for Moses as both his sister Miriam and his brother Aaron preceded him in death in the wilderness. And I wonder, I wonder if as he, as he neared the summit of Mount Nebo, if he remembered with regret why God would not allow him to enter the promised land. This incredible man of faith, a man who had borne the burden of heading and leading an unruly people for 40 years. This man who followed God's call on his life. I wonder if he remembered that day that the people demanded water. Water. And they got it. Water from a rock. Just another in a long line of miracles. But Moses would only see the promised land from a distance because of what happened that day. He would never set foot in the promised land. As he reached the summit, I wonder if Moses thought about the farewell address that he had delivered to the people. He reminded them of the Ten Commandments and warned them not to add to the commandments that they had received or to subtract anything from the instructions that they had received from God. They were to teach these instructions to each succeeding generation and never let them forget that there is one God, a God who loved them and chose them out of all the peoples in the earth and chose them to have a land, a nation, and to be a blessing to the entire world. And they were to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and strength. And you know, I wonder, as he peered out over the landscape, I wonder if he heard the voice of God that day. The Bible tells us that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And I wonder if the man who saw him who is invisible, if he heard God's voice that day. I wonder if he heard the voice of God say, friend, it's time to come home. Time to come home. And I wonder if Moses closed his eyes and just went home. You know, it's interesting, the Bible indicates that God buried him. And nobody knew where it was. Now, friends, we're in the fourth and final week of our lesson series focused on God the Father, the Father of our spiritual family. And over the past three weeks, we've been looking at different aspects or attributes of God the Father. And if you've missed any of these lessons, I would, I would strongly encourage you, if at all possible, to pick up the free CDs out at the Welcome Center or view the lessons, which you can view them on video online now. Today, we're going to concentrate on the attribute or the aspect of God that is His love. And I can imagine that there are some here this morning that are thinking, thank heaven 
we're finally getting to a lesson that's warm and fuzzy, right? I mean, after three weeks going from holiness to justice to wrath, it's about time we got a topic that's touchy-feely, okay? I also imagine that there are some of you who are already jumping ahead of me. And you're thinking, why is Jeff referencing Moses not getting into the promised land in a lesson about God's love? What's up with that? Think about it. I mean, if God is love, and that's, that's what the Bible says. It's, the Bible says God is love. Not God can love, or God is capable of love, or God does loving acts. It says God is love. In other words, everything he does is an expression of his love. That would include his justice. That would include wrath. Because he is love. Nothing he does is not love. Whoa. But if God is love, isn't he supposed to have a wonderful plan for my life? I mean, that's what a lot of churches tell people, right? I mean, if God is love, he's supposed to make us happy. We're supposed to have happy lives, right? He's supposed to solve our problems. He's supposed to rescue us from the hassles of life, right? I mean, if I put my faith and trust in God, shouldn't he give me my best life now? Right now. Isn't that the way love's supposed to work? I mean, if I have an addiction, he's supposed to cure it. If my marriage is on the rocks, he'll heal it. If I'm under water financially, he'll, he'll figure out a way to pull me out, right? Because he loves me and he's able to solve my problems. I mean, that's the way this is supposed to work, right? If I follow him, doesn't he kind of owe me a problem-free life? Isn't that how love works? Now, friends, our focus verse for this lesson series is 1 Corinthians 8, 6. It's coming up here on the screens. Let's all recite it together. Here we go. We know that there is only one God, the Father, who created everything, and we exist for him. Let's let's say that one more time. and, And really let these words sink in your mind. Okay, here we go. We know that there is only one God, the Father, who created everything, and we exist for him. Now, says there's only one God, the Father, who created everything. In other words, friends, you and I are created beings. We didn't get here on our own. We're the result of a creative act of a creator God. We are dependent on him for life. We exist because for whatever reason, he loved us enough to give us life and breath. Everything we are and everything we have are gifts from him, given to us. And that's why this sentence 
closes with the phrase, we exist for him. Which means he does not exist for us. He loves us. He does not exist for us. And friends, we can never confuse those two things. We exist for him. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us and for this time that we have to look into your word. And Father, help us this morning to have an open mind and to think seriously and think well about what your love is and how it operates in our lives. Father, help us to learn from the life of Moses, a a towering figure in the Bible. But Father, he was just a man. No doubt capable of great things when he was operating under your power. But still, a man, a human being, flawed, sinful like all of us. Help us, Father, to learn from him this morning, for this is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Now, friends, throughout this series, we've been learning about various aspects of God's character through the life of Moses. And if this is your first time at Good News Gathering, you received an outline. It's got holes punched on the side. It's a white sheet with all the scriptures that we'll be looking at for the rest of the day. But Moses' life and the history of the Israelite people are covered in the first five books of the Bible. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And some of you out there are, are actually involved in our Through the Bible in a Year reading plans, okay? And if you are doing that and you're reading through the entire Bible, you are right in the midst of these books as we speak, okay? You're probably into Exodus now or perhaps even, even if you're reading fast, uh, you might be in uh, Leviticus, okay? But what I want to do is I kind of want to give you like a visual to kind of help you think your way through those first five books. And so what I'm showing you here is the Middle East, okay? And you have there on the, on the left-hand side, you have the Mediterranean Sea, that blue, that blue area. And then on, on the bottom on the left-hand side, you have the Red Sea, okay? And then you have the Persian Gulf over here to the right. And when you get to Genesis chapter 12, you run into a guy by the name of Abraham. And Abraham is known in the Bible as the father of the faith. He is the father or the patriarch of the Israelite people. And he begins his life, we pick up his life in Genesis chapter 12 in a place called Ur. And Ur is located in, back in those days, known as Babylon um, or, the, or Babylonia. It is currently in what, what would be today Iraq. Okay, but but Abraham travels from Ur up to a place called Haran, and Haran is located in what would now be southern Turkey. Okay, and God calls Abraham in Genesis chapter twelve and says, 
I want you to go to a land I will show you. He doesn't tell him where he's going. And as far as we know, Abraham's never been this far away from his original place, which was in Ur. But God says, I want you to go, and here's what's going to happen. I will make you into a great nation. I will give you land that I will show you. And through your descendants, the whole world will be blessed. The whole world will be blessed. And so Abraham begins to follow, totally on faith, he begins to follow where God leads him, and God leads him south into that area that we know today as Palestine, where the current nation of Israel is, and back in those days it was known more as as Canaan. But after Abraham died, his descendants, due to a famine, moved south into Egypt. And when they were in Egypt... That's when they became slaves. Now, this red line really is, is a kind of an overview of the book of Genesis. But the next line is a line we're going to show you, a green line, which kind of shows you what happens in the book of Exodus. In Exodus, the people exit or leave Egypt, and they go with Moses, and they travel south or southeast, depending on which... Um, which one of the paths that that scholars currently believe that they took. But Moses led them out of Egypt to Mount Sinai. Now, there are those today who believe that Mount Sinai was located there on what's known as the Gulf of Suez, which which is that area that leads off to the left from the Red Red Sea. Some believe that that Mount Sinai was actually located near uh, what's called the Gulf of Aqaba, which is that, that neck off to the right um, of the Red Sea. But that is the book of Exodus. They get there to where they're going to do and meet with God and, and get the Ten Commandments. This is where the book of Leviticus fits in because the book of Leviticus covers the law that Moses received at Mount Sinai, wherever exactly that was located. And so Leviticus is focused on the law and the instructions that Moses received. Then in the book of Numbers, the people begin to move toward the promised land. And this did not work out successfully. Because when they first went to the promised land, the people sent spies into the promised land and and they felt that they could not win Despite all the miraculous things they had seen happen in Egypt, they felt they could not take the land and they rebelled and refused to go in. And God required them to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness until that entire generation died out. Now the next book is the book of Deuteronomy. And the book of Deuteronomy includes Moses' final instructions to the people. After that 40-year wandering in the wilderness, his final instructions as the people were ready to enter the promised land. They're about to cross the Jordan River to take on the city of Jericho. But what was it? What exactly happened that kept Moses from going into the promised land? Why was it that God said, no, you've led these people for 40 years, but you don't get to go into the promised land. And we pick up the story in the book of Numbers. And it goes like this. 
Now, there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. And there there were different instances during their wanderings in the wilderness where the people would rebel and and some of them would die. And we looked looked at one of those last week. But then they said, why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. So these people are complaining. And despite the fact that they were getting manna every day to eat, despite the fact that once before they had complained about water and God brought water out of a rock, despite the fact that they had seen ten plagues that freed them from Egypt, despite the fact that they had seen the parting of the Red Sea, the people still complained. And the Bible tells us that Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. So so these guys are distraught. Moses, you can imagine, year after year, putting up with these people who seem to go from one complaint to the next. He's had enough. And he falls face down before the Lord and says, And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Pay careful attention. Take the staff. He's talking about the staff that Moses used. Same staff that he threw down in Pharaoh's palace and it became a snake. Some of you remember that story. Same staff that he lifted up and the Red Sea parted. And God says, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. So there was either a large rock or a large boulder there where they were, where they were. Some people think it may have been as much as a, like a cliff of stone. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. And look at what Moses did. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, so far so good. And Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we, circle that word, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out in the community and their livestock drank. This was a a virtual torrent of water coming out of this rock. But remember what the Lord said. He said, take the staff. Speak to that rock before the eyes of the assembly and it will pour out its water. But Moses gathered the the assembly, took the staff, said, must we bring you water out of this rock? And then he strikes the rock twice with the staff. Now the Bible goes on to say this. 
But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, and, and scholars believe that God basically took them aside out of the hearing of the people and said to them, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy. Circle that phrase. Honor me as holy. Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Whoa. What's going on here? He says, because you did not trust in me enough. And many scholars believe that Moses' faith wavered. There was a lack of trust in God's instruction. He said, just take the staff, but just speak to the rock, and the water will come out. Moses didn't do that. Not only that, he said, must we bring you water out of this rock? As though he was taking credit for this miracle that God would perform. Many scholars believe that when God says, you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy, this is what he's talking about. He took credit for a miracle that was God's alone. In fact, the Bible goes on to say in Numbers 27, then the Lord said to Moses, go up this mountain, here he's referring to Mount Nebo, and see the land I've given the Israelites. After you have seen it, you too will be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was For when the community rebelled at the waters in the desert of Zin, both of you disobeyed my command to honor me as holy. There's that phrase again, before their eyes. In other words, in other words, friends, God is holy. There's only one God. And Moses had no right to claim that miracle. No right to claim that he was in some way involved in making that happen. What's more, he didn't abide by God's specific instructions as to how to do this on that day. And friends, I don't know about you, but I look at that story and I think, man, what's going on here? But if you remember, in, in, in week one, we've, we discovered that, that God, one of the attributes of God is his holiness. And that word holiness simply means God's absolute sinless perfection. He's pure. He's perfect. He's without any taint of evil. God's absolute sinless perfection and freedom from the potential of moral evil. In other words, nothing dark resides in him. In fact, he says through his prophet Habakkuk, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So God is holy. And then as we learned in week two, God is also just. 
And that word just or justice simply means righteousness. Righteousness. And the word righteousness simply means doing in all circumstances that which is right and good. So justice is simply God's holiness in action. So, so God is holy, he's, he's morally perfect, but he's also just, so he actually does in every situation that which is right and good. Justice is simply God's holiness in action. Now last week, we learned about another aspect of God's character, and that is wrath. Wrath. And we define that word as the determined, willed, chosen, visceral reaction of a holy God against all that dishonors him and rebels against him. The determined. In other words, there is a decision. The determined. It's intentional. It is willed. In other words, it is consistent with his character. It is chosen. In other words, unlike human wrath, it is not something that happens spontaneously. It's not something that, oh, I was just overcome by emotion and all of a sudden I took an action that I later regret. No. God's wrath is determined. It is willed. It is chosen. And it is visceral. Visceral, and here's, here's what we mean by that. God cannot simply tolerate evil without some emotion. The example that we used last week is that if somebody, somebody harms a member of your family, if you had absolutely no emotional reaction to that, there would be something wrong with you because you love that person. And you care about that person. And when somebody harms that person, there is an emotion attached. And God feels that when he is dishonored, when evil occurs, when people harm others. Wrath is the determined, willed, chosen, visceral reaction of a holy God against all that dishonors him and rebels against him. It is the application of God's justice. In other words, wrath is the punishment end of God's justice. The actual action taken in order to achieve a just result. But the Bible also goes on to explain to us in Exodus 34, it says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And yet it says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. So how does this all work together? How can God be holy and be just and and also exercise wrath and yet be loving as well? Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, 
rebellion and sin. Friends, I want to define love this way. Love is a willed commitment. In other words, it is a choice. It is not just an emotion. Oh, I feel love toward this person today. No. It is a willed commitment. Whether or not that person is lovable today. Love is a willed commitment to sacrificially seek. To sacrificially seek. In other words, to put yourself out there at times in a sacrificial way to sacrificially seek the highest good of the one loved even though that one is undeserving. Even though that one is undeserving. Friends, when we think of love in this way, It is a choice. It is an intentional act that is not based on feelings that can change today or tomorrow. It's a decision. In an age of lower moral standards, we find it hard to believe that God would punish Moses for an act of disobedience like this. We would look look at this and say, but, but, but... but wait a minute, I mean, he's, he's been following you for all these years. He's been doing all this stuff. And, and, and think about what, think about how, how difficult leading these people has been. And yet God in his holiness, in his justice, in his wrath, imposed a punishment on Moses for this act in which Moses failed to treat him as holy. Now, God did not reject Moses, but sin has consequences. And unfortunately, Moses disqualified himself from entering the promised land. But friends, as we look through the Old Testament, as we looked at how God, how God inter, interacted with Moses and with the children of Israel, we see that he loved them in a sacrificial way. Through, the, through Nehemiah, it says this, but they, our ancestors, referring to the Israelites as they came toward the promised land, became arrogant and stiff-necked. They did not obey your commands They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing, their clothes. Fascinating fact, did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. Isn't it interesting that even though Moses... Even though Moses disobeyed God, even though it appears Moses took in some way credit for this miracle, that God still provided water for these people, enough for them, enough for their flocks and their herds, 
because he knew they needed it. Friends, that kind of love is a willed commitment to sacrificially seek the highest good of the one loved, even when they're undeserving. And friends, the same is true for us today. That's the kind of love that God has for us. The Bible says it's this way. You see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and me. Ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Referring to Christ. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we we be saved through his life? So friends, if that is the kind of love that God has for us, the same kind of love that he demonstrated to Moses, the same kind of love he demonstrated to the Israelite people, how do we respond to God's love? How do we do that? There's five things here, friends, I'm going to run, to run through very quickly. But it's based out of Romans 3, 23 through 26, and it goes like this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, that's everybody. That's you and that's me and that's Moses and that's the Pope and that's Billy Graham and Mother Teresa, you name them. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Notice it says God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. In other words, that word atonement simply means to bring at one, to bring together. To bring us together with God through his son, through the shedding of his blood. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just. In other words, he is holy. He cannot tolerate sin, and that's yours and mine. But he punished that sin in his son on the cross. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. In other words, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you become justified in the eyes of God. You become right in his eyes and he is just and will not punish you for the sins you've committed because he already punished them in Jesus. So how do we respond to God's love? Number one, admit. Admit that I have sinned against a holy God. Admit that I have sinned against 
a holy God. Every time you and I sin, friends, we fail to recognize God as holy. And we act against his character. Number two, acknowledge that my sin, sins warrant God's justice and wrath. The Bible tells us that all sin leads to death. And friends, if we do not accept Christ, then it leads to our death. Unless Christ pays that penalty for us. Third, accept Christ's sacrifice for my sin. Accept Christ's sacrifice for my sins. Number four, ask for forgiveness. Ask God to forgive you for your sins. The Bible tells us that he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins if we confess them. And number five, Accept that God is more concerned about my righteousness than my happiness and my character than my comfort. Friends, I realize that this last point is extremely difficult. Many times... It seems to me that a lot of people view Christianity as something that is designed to give them their best life now, as something that is designed to take away all their troubles, something that is there to to solve all of their problems. And the truth of the matter is, That God is more concerned about our righteousness than our happiness. Would it have made Moses happy to enter the promised land? No doubt. But God was far more interested in his righteousness than his happiness. Many times, friends, I think we get caught up in the idea that Christianity should make us comfortable. It should make our lives easy. But God quite often is more interested in our character than our comfort. When he called Moses, he did not call him to a comfortable life. He called him to a life that would produce character in the crucible of difficulty and trials. And friends, I... I learned something this week that I did not know. I saw this statistic that just blew me away. A statistic that required me to put this fifth point on your outline. Did you know that according to reputable studies, 171,000 Christians are martyred for their faith every year right 
now. 171,000 Christians die for their faith somewhere in the world this year. Do you think Christianity offers these folks their best life right now? Do you think they view Christianity as something that's intended to make them happy right now? To solve all their problems right now? You see, when people face, Christians face that kind of difficulty, they learn very quickly that God is more interested in their righteousness than their happiness in the moment. That he is much more interested in their character than their company and then than, than their comfort in the here and now. And friends, I believe that those people, in many ways just like Moses, have a moment with God where he says to them, friend, it's time to come home. It's time to come home. Because there's a place that you're coming to where there'll be no more tears. There'll be no more crying. There'll be no more pain. This life may be difficult. It may have its trials. It may have its pain. But I'm more concerned about your righteousness. And I'm more concerned about character than happiness and comfort. Because happiness and comfort will last for eternity. And you'll never have to look back. Now, friends, this morning, on that last box on your outline, the next steps box, there's a, there's a question there that I hope during this week that you'll take some time to just think about and maybe even talk about it in your family. But I ask the question like this, and there's other things on here. I hope you'll check them out, but this is where I want you to focus, if you would, this week. Ask yourself this. Do I believe that the primary purpose of the good news is to solve my problems, to make me happy, to rescue me from the hassles of life? Or do I believe that the primary purpose of the good news is to make me righteous in Christ and save me from sin and death? Which is it for you? I hope that you'll wrestle with that question this week and that you, like Moses, someday will have an opportunity to look over your life those things that went well, maybe those things that didn't go so well, and maybe looking out at some things that you wish you could have done or things that you wish you could have done different. And yet still hear the Father say, Friend,
It's time to come home. Time to come home. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us with Moses. Time to learn about you. Time to learn about your character. Time to learn about why we can trust you and honor you as holy. Father, help us to be Christians that do exactly that. To honor you as holy in our lives. To realize that you love us enough to be more concerned about our righteousness than our happiness, our character than our comfort. For this is our prayer in Christ's name. And we all agreed together and said, Amen.